welcome I'm Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. We usually launch on every Wednesday but ex-RBI governor Urjit Patel has launched his book where he tries to put together the entire thread on how the government's macroeconomic policies are connected with how public sector banks are run in this country and what happens to the savers whose money is being utilized to save the living dead which in case in this case are the borrowers. While the author has declined to do the interview, we at Forbes India for the first time have an outside guest to discuss a book. And we thought, who better than Pooja Mehra, an economic journalist and author of the last decade, how India's growth story devolved into growth without story. Now, before I go to her and invite her on the show, I have picked two paragraphs, very small ones, from Urjit Patel's book for our listeners. Now, I hope you enjoy our episode and as always, Please follow us and share our podcast with your loved ones, with your office colleagues, with your classmates, with everyone. Now, here are the two paragraphs. Innovative schemes in the smoke and mirrors genre have been hatched up. The government-owned LIC and State Bank of India in 2019 have been directed by the Finance Ministry to pony up Rs 150 billion towards a fund to provide financing to already over-leveraged problematic real estate projects that are close to completion. Moreover, even as the spillover onto banks of other intermediaries has been a concern for the latter's health, the government has agreed to underwrite 10% of banks' purchase of up to 1 trillion rupees of NBFC debt. Surely, this does not de-risk matters. The second paragraph, which is quite important. It is apparent that the temptation to deploy government banks for catalyzing aggregate demand has intensified. The culmination is a vicious cycle as the government's headroom for running higher fiscal deficits is exhausted. Government banks are encouraged to overlend to pump prime the economy and boost preferred sectors. Almost inevitably, this leads to higher NPAs over time, which requires equity infusion from the government. And this eventually adds to the fiscal deficit and sovereign liabilities, for example, on account of recapitalization bonds in due course anyway. The size of governments' both central and state credit enhancement and guarantee obligations have also increased. Now, let me open the floor to Pooja and thank you so much for doing the show today with us. Welcome to the show. And I'll start with why do you think this book is important at this point in time and why is it so timely in nature? Uh, thank you for uh, calling me to your show, Pooja. I'm very happy to be on your show. And uh, why this book is important, I think it's a very important book. And it's also very timely because, uh, you know, given the, the, given the macroeconomic context, context in which, uh, you know, as the book describes, although it was written before COVID-19, uh, before the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, you know, the book describes how there is a macroeconomic problem in India, which... Uh, repetitively turns into a banking crisis and uh, uh, that sort of vicious cycle, uh, nothing is done to break it and therefore we keep going into it again and again. And I think the, I haven't seen any other analysis as yet, uh, which is uh, sort of described this problem as clearly uh, as this book describes. 
and um, uh, you know it, uh, I, th I thought what really struck me about the book is the fact that it describes how uh, all different stakeholders incentives are aligned in perpetuating this particular cycle that is being described why banks do what they do why the government does what it does why everybody else keeps quiet about it and the book points out that it's only now that savers people like you and me who hold money in banks as deposits uh, we are beginning to recognize that there is this problem and that is why uh, 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 you know uh, there are questions about how safe are government banks so i think the question that the book asks is uh, you know uh, do we want safer banks or not and that question is explained in terms of the uh, connection with the macroeconomic problem while he does not really allude to the entire uh, episode of the demonetization period which everybody wanted to hear a little about but he says that in his book about the second part which is it is apparent that the temptation to deploy government banks for catalyzing aggregate demand has intensified which culminates into a vicious cycle and the book has done has this greater emphasis on how the government is using public sector banks to manage its macroeconomic policies can you elaborate on what he says in the book yeah that's exactly why uh, the book is timely and that's exactly what is the macroeconomic problem that he's describing what he's saying is that the gov increasingly governments have limited space to increase their fiscal spending uh, and um, he, you know he describes how uh, uh, wherever the economy whatever uh, you know uh, cycle the economy is in fiscal policies almost always lose which means that the government has very little uh, ability to increase its uh, fiscal deficit uh, you know follow more loose fiscal policy because it cannot do that what it does is it use bank uses banks which it owns uh, to uh, increase lending and uh, try and revive uh, try and give a push to private investment uh, and you know handle the macroeconomic problems of growth etc using its ownership of banks as well as the dominance of the uh, uh, of, of the regulation of government owned banks and uh, goes into uh, you know part of the economy the the borrowers who calls the living dead who who uh, are not able to repay these loans uh, um, and traditionally when they don't repay these loans uh, you know uh, banks uh, do not banks have a lot of discretion to be, to show a lot of tolerance for non payment of these of these loans and uh, that leads to losses in banks and and that leads to banks needing more capital and therefore the government again has to put money into these banks by capitalization uh, which again has fiscal implications so what he's describing is that uh, you know there is a macroeconomic problem that the government tries to solve there is a lot of like even right now you're seeing that the government needs to give a fiscal push to the economy uh, it needs to stimulate demand in the economy and because it does not have fiscal space it's getting banks to do it because it owns banks and uh, uh, banks end up giving these loans like i said uh, to uh, uh, companies that have uh, not repaid previous loans so they help those uh, companies stay afloat and which results in greater losses which needs banks uh, to get more money from the government so that's uh, sort of the cycle that he's describing and that's the use of banks for solving macroeconomic problems that he's describing 
and therefore he says that um, uh, government sort of uh, does not allow the RBI to uh, regulate government banks the way it does allow the RBI to regulate private sector banks. True. There is a portion in the book which uh, where the, I read this line which says that the government relaxed rules for some banks under PCA so that they can wiggle out of it. And you know, uh, can you explain a little on that on how government has been going easy in a uh, trying to push policies through recapitalization and also how uh, the NPAs in government banks have been increasing once again over the last year and a half or so. Uh, yeah, so same thing that, you know, because the government needs to stimulate the economy, stimulate growth, and the government does not have the ability to do that through its budget, it relies on government banks. And the PCA framework uh, is a framework uh, under which banks that have run up huge losses, they are prevented from, uh, by the RBI's regulations from uh, uh, their, their lending operations become restricted. Uh, what the government wants is those restrictions to be lifted uh, because like i explained that the uh, you know like he writes that that the government depends on banks uh, uh, to stimulate demand in the economy by giving loans uh, you know and uh, therefore the government wants uh, government banks to come out of the pca framework so that they can resume their normal lending operations True. And coming to the part where he talks about your entire, uh, uh, let's go to the IBC. And he says the disposition with respect to IBC perceptibly changed in mid 2018, uh, where he clearly says that, you know, until then, he and the finance minister were more or less on the same page. And then things changed. Uh, an, atmosphere, an atmosphere to go easy ensued. And why did that happen? And what do you think are the ramifications of that on the banking ecosystem? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, is, uh, you know, the most important part of the book uh, for many, will be the most important part of the book for many readers, uh, including me. Uh, so what, so there was this February 2018 circular under the uh, insolvency bankruptcy code that the RBI had um, uh, put out. And what this circular did is that it removed discretion that banks had on deciding what constitutes a default. Uh, and in this new regulatory uh, regime, um, what it favored was that there should be a change of ownership of uh, firms that went default on uh, loan repayments. Uh, why? Because, uh, you know, if defaulting promoters risk losing control of their firms under IBC, then that creates an incentive for them to um, manage their business risks better and ensure that there's minimum uh, default on loan repayments going forward. And it also creates incentives for lenders to come up with uh, uh, turnaround plans so that, you know, a particular account would not become an NPA. And uh, the whole idea was that if you have an uh, early recognition of stress, then uh, slippage of, uh, you know, loans into NPAs would be reduced. Uh, to my mind, that was a very well thought out and a very logical way of going about uh, implementing the IBC. Uh, so like you said, what he writes is that until about uh, the middle of 2018, he and the finance minister, he doesn't name any names in the book, but he says that he and the finance minister were on the same page as far as this regulation is concerned. And then he says that, you know, requests were received on 
diluting the IBC. He, and uh, he writes that uh, the government began to feel that the IBC had already created a deterrent. Uh, and probably, you know, um, therefore, uh, there was scope to go a little easy on the very, um, you know, strict uh, February 18 regulation, which, you know, what that February 18, 2018 circular did is there was a, if there was a, a default, then, you know, within a day, uh, the provisions got uh, sort of uh, uh, kicked in. So, uh, so he argues deterrence is created, uh, you know, according to him, when um, the defaulters are you know, sort of fear uh, that there would be economic consequences uh, in a given period of time. So the February uh, 2018 circular had very strict uh, timelines. And uh, which is why, you know, he describes it in, uh, with a lot of facts that how that circular was actually uh, delivering recovery uh, under that circular's provisions. Uh, he even gives a figure for it, uh, uh, you know, seems quite impressive. And uh, but while there were requests received for diluting this particular uh, time bound manner of uh, uh, that was provided by the, uh, the circular, he says that you know all kinds of confusion was created, all kinds of statements came out, for instance, that MSMEs would be covered by the circular, which was not the case. And uh, he says that uh, many statements were coming out of the finance ministry, which suggested that the official position was uh, in favor of settlements of uh, defaulting accounts outside the IBC and a preference, uh, you know, for, uh, I mean, the IBC should not really be the first resort for banks to pursue resolution and should also not be used in all cases. So, you know, so he sort of um, sort of kind of asks the question, then what do we make of the government's position on IBC, you know? And I thought he has a great line in the book where he says that, you know, is the IBC then only a fifth wheel? And uh, so what the what what I make of make from this is uh, that what he's saying is that there was a lot of resistance for this particular uh, circular and the time, time bound, uh, regime that the circular had had introduced, and this of course got challenged in court. And uh, he has he has great discussion in the book on what he thinks of the the verdict uh, in in court, and uh, uh, he suggests that um, the the verdicts uh, sort of uh, the verdict saying that uh, amendments legal amendments under which uh, the RBI was given these powers. Uh, sort of placed a restriction on the loan defaulters' right to carry business. Uh, so he sort of, you know, wonders, uh, you know, what about the bank's right to carry business, carry out business, you know, because if there's de delay in recovery of loans, then that has implications for banks' capital requirements, and it has implications for how much banks can lend, and therefore, so he seems to suggest that uh, that particular verdict sort of um, uh, looks at only very has a very partial view of the picture and he sort of provides the other side you know the economists side of uh, the the picture which is not so easy to see for everybody it's like the hidden side of the um, picture and uh, <clears throat> because um, because this particular February 2018 circular was struck down uh, the RBI came out with another circular in June 2019, which he writes diluted the definition of what constitutes a default by giving a 30-day review period after default. Uh, he 
points out that this happened although the Supreme Court had not found the one-day default rule problematic. And he also writes of, uh, you know, the consequences of uh, this new June 2018 circular for banks, because uh, if banks cannot immediately begin to recover uh, loans, uh, which are likely, which have, where there's been default, and if the timeline, uh, you know, is increasing, and in one place in the book, he writes that it's almost become like an open-ended process, the, the deadlines are gone. And... Uh, uh, you know, so the consequences of that is that banks are going to have to make more provisions, they have to book lower profits, they have to sort of write off uh, capital and, uh, you know, so that has implications for banks. And, you know, we're already seeing, he wrote this, of course, before the COVID-19 loan repayment moratoriums kicked in, before the relaxations on uh, you know, accounts being declared as NPAs. The problem only sort of, uh, sort of has become bigger after the COVID-19 True. There's this one portion I wanted to check with you on this because I was reading the book and I realized there's a portion where he clearly writes that a lot of people, for example, real estate uh, developers looking for uh, relief packages, everybody is seeking, re- I mean, it is even before the COVID-19 in 2018 or so when he writes about these things, where these developers are looking for relief packages, MSMEs uh, want easier pack- uh, easier ways to repay their loans and also as he alludes that, you know, uh, if there is no time-bound closure of these cases, these cases will, will drag on and government really wants people to resolve things before it comes to the court. How do you think are things panning out in today's time now that, you know, moratorium has been allowed? Uh, cases are not really going to IBC anymore because there are, uh, because businesses have been impacted due to the pandemic. What is really happening in the ecosystem when it comes to IBC at this point in time. Yeah, so he hasn't obviously discussed this because I think he, uh, his book has uh, come out before, I mean, he may have uh, finished writing it before the COVID-19 outbreak happened. But, you know, now that this has happened and, you know, there is a complete moratorium on um, repayments and declaration of accounts as NPAs, etc., what that does is that uh, while uh, some companies are going into a situation of, uh, uh, you know, from where they may not recover, it's one thing that you need a moratorium to sort of get your act together during a tough phase. And then, you know, when things get better, you'll be back on your feet. But there will be many that will not be back on their feet. What this uh, these new regulations do is that uh, the banking sector and the regulator will never find out who those companies are. They will find out only when all of these relaxations are lifted. And therefore, suddenly there will be a big jump, uh, a surge in the NPA levels, the requirement for banks, uh, uh, bank requirement for capital. And uh, that will be a sudden shock to the banking sector. And uh, we don't know how much ability the government will have to recapitalize the fiscal space to recapitalize the banks that it owns. How that shock to the financial sector and the banking sector will play out, we have to be mindful of. And I think this is exactly what also the, the sitting RBI governor, Mr. Shaktikanta Das, said last week. He's, issue, he's raised some red flags and he's sort of um, made a speech last week saying that uh, the financial stability uh, in the economy should be the most important uh, policy ab- objective for the RBI and the government right now because they're operating under so much uncertainty just as business is. Government probably needs to keep capital ready to put into banks should the need be if all of these loans don't come back. 
uh, because otherwise what will happen to the depositors money that is right now in banks sure at the heart of this book is this entire uh, relationship between the government the government banks and then these uh, loans that have been given out now i wanted to come to the part where he also hints at the fact that you know over the time we have seen that indian banking ecosystem gets into this massive npa cycles we've seen in the 90s we've seen in the 2007 2000 cycle and now again it i mean it obviously blew up around 2015 but there is this need for government also to keep pushing these loans towards companies and because of the excessive lending that has been happening and also as you said the book mentions about the living dead how is this ecosystem uh, still going to pan out this way or are there any changes that one expects Uh, so i think that's how he ends the book right uh, he he sort of uh, says that uh, he describes it like a, um, you know like a trilemma and uh, he 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 says that you know it's 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 clear that uh, uh, you know you cannot have three things happening at the same time which is that the government uh, you know uh, sort of government owned banks dominate the banking sector uh and uh, you know also regulation of these banks and at the same time uh, you know uh, the government sort of uh, uh meets is its uh, um, public debt gdp targets uh so uh, all three cannot happen uh, at the same time only two of the three can be sustained so you know uh, unless solutions are found applied uh this problem will blow up at some point in time either the banking sector will go into crisis or your public i mean fiscal deficit problem will blow up one of the two is going to happen now uh, so he says that the government uh, has to decide i think he says the government has to decide on behalf of the taxpayer uh, as to uh, what it wants to do with uh, banks we want safer banks or not uh and i uh, he he also says it's not this doesn't just apply to banks it also applies to all the other financial sector uh you know companies the government owns for instance lic you know because it keeps plying lic into uh helping banks sometimes through the market or sometimes you know acquiring like idbi bank a problematic bank so when it doesn't have money it gets some of its other companies that it owns to uh, help out and uh you know so so he says that you know uh, the solution is that you know uh, you you have to either uh, reform your banking sector or you have to forget about fiscal deficit so i think that's how he puts it <laughs> okay uh, one last question before i let you go there is a portion where he talks about that the regulator fell short on several counts in the period leading up to 2014 uh, and it failed to challenge the assumptions to for example uh, more rigorous stress test scenarios at bank level uh, and that's when i think they introduced the entire concept of aqr uh, how are these aqrs panning at this point in time also because we have seen that as many as 90% of frauds by value are ha- has happened in the government banks as compared to only 8% in private banks how helpful are these aqrs uh, in terms of at least in government banks over the last few years because you also you you track banking so closely i wanted to understand your perspective before i let you go Yeah, sure. Um, so the uh, I I think the AQR is probably the most important thing, right? Because if you don't do the AQR, how will you know uh, what is the what is the size of the NPA problem? Because like he like he explains, uh, you know, and elsewhere, uh, 
his predecessor Raghuram Rajan has also explained that uh, uh, the AQR was introduced when you know Raghuram Rajan was the governor. Uh, so uh, they've explained that what was happening uh, before the AQR was done, and this is basically the problem that this book, uh, you know, Dr. Rajit Patel's book also explains is that what happens is that there is an incentive for banks to not declare a loan, even when the loan is not being serviced required. Uh, they don't declare that account as an NPA because they don't want to show NPAs on their books. The minute they show NPAs on their books, they have to do a whole lot of other things. Uh, their own ability to lend more uh, gets restricted, etc., etc., etc. They have their losses, this, that, and the other. So the incentive for the bank management is to not sh is to understate NPAs in some sense, and that is exactly what the incentive also is for the. Uh, borrower because the the borrower does not want even if they are not servicing their loan they don't want their loan to be shown as an NPA so and and by the way this is also what the government wants because you know the government also doesn't want high NPA numbers to be shown so everybody wants that NPA numbers should be understated and therefore the NPA numbers were always understated and how they did it was is that the you know for the large borrower borrowers the large and influential influential borrowers uh, when their uh, loan repayments were sort of falling short what they would do is they would you know there was a lot of discretion with banks to give them uh, more time etc and also sometimes fresh loans which is what he says you know which is evergreening of loans they would give them fresh loans so that they could with this new loan money re start repaying the previous loans that they were not able to repay right so there is an evergreening of loans that was taking place what the aqr did is that the aqr forced the banks to give a truer picture of what the size of the npa problem on their books was the aqr is the starting point of recognizing that there is a large npa problem and getting an idea of the magnitude of it and understanding where all the problem is which all accounts are in problem and so in some sense, it was the starting of the whole cleanup that uh, both the author, Dr. Urjit Patel, and his predecessor initiated. Uh, and in the book, he writes that uh, a similar AQR uh, should be done also for NBFCs. True. The, in the end, Urjit Patel talks about the whole trilemma, which you discuss in detail today. But what are your other key conclusions from the book? And what are the things that policymakers also need to think about uh, after reading this book? Uh, you know, I think uh, if I was a policymaker right now, uh, given what he describes in the book has sort of actually got magnified uh, many times because of this moratorium scenario and the COVID crisis scenario, we are entering into the COVID crisis with this big problem that he has described. Now that has got amplified because of uh, this problem. So the key takeaway would be for them to go back to some form of time bound treatment of defaults, uh, reform banks, the whole reform part that he has described on how uh, uh, the, the regulation of government-owned banks by the RBI has to be similar and as stringent as the RBI's regulation of private sector banks is. Uh, the government's dominance in not just the banking sector, but also its ability to sort of, uh, you know, dominate the regulation uh, that has to be relooked. 
uh, and um, uh, I think I don't think the government is a choice. They're going to have to capitalize government banks. So I think the key takeaway for the policymakers is that how they cannot keep using banks to make up for the macroeconomic problem of not having any fiscal space to revive demand and kickstart the economy. Uh, they, they've been doing it, governments have been doing it, successive governments have been doing it, but I think the key takeaway from the book for policymakers is that this cannot go on, it's going to land the economy into trouble. Uh, and the key takeaway for uh, all other readers like you and me, I think, is he asks in some point, uh, which is a sentence that is uh, very important, I think, is that, you know, do we really want safer banks? Our money is in these banks. After all, it is our money uh, that all these policymakers and banks are sort of using to give out these loans where defaults happen and uh, uh, loans don't get repaid. So it is our money. Everybody's always talking about borrowers, but uh, this is the first time somebody is talking about savers. After all, this is the savers' money. So, you know, I think the takeaway is do we really care about the savers whose money is there in the banks? And he also says that uh, the very fact that deposits raised by private banks, uh, the quantum is greater than the deposits raised by uh, government-owned banks. And I think he looks at the data till before the Yes Bank fiasco happened earlier this year. People have put more money in private banks. And he says that that suggests that people are beginning to understand that, you know, that old thing of government banks being safe is now open to question. Uh, uh, he's not looked at the data after Yes Bank, so it may change after Yes Bank. I've also not looked at the data. But the thing is that I think in people's minds, there already is this question that are public sector banks, government banks, more safe than private banks? Uh, so uh, that's the other thing. Of course, now a lot of money has gone into banks because people are not spending and they're putting all their money in banks. So we're in a different phase now. Um, but that's the other takeaway, you know, how uh, we need banks to be safer for the saver. True, that's true. Thank you so much, Fuja, for your time today.